Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, and welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Shannon Bond, stepping in for Cardiff Garcia this week while he's on the road. On this week's show, we're talking about beer. After rejecting four previous offers, SAB Miller has finally accepted a mega offer from Anheuser-Busch InBev. FT correspondents James Fontanella-Khan and Lindsay Whip will join me to talk about the deal. Then I sit down with Gimlet Media's Matt Lieber. He's the co-founder and president of the Brooklyn-based podcast network behind shows such as Startup and Reply All. We're going to talk about what is going on in podcasting and why it's so interesting right now. And finally, Greg Ipp, chief economics commentator from the Wall Street Journal, on his new book, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. Let's get on with the show. This week, we got news of a blockbuster beer deal. Anheuser-Busch InBev, the owner of Budweiser and Corona, has finally won over SAB Miller, which makes Miller Genuine Draft and Peroni, among others. I'm joined here in New York by James Fontanella-Khan, the FT's U.S. mergers and acquisition correspondent. On the line from Chicago is Lindsay Whip, who covers consumer goods. Hi to both of you, and welcome to Alpha Chat. Hi, Shannon. Hey. So guys, this is a massive deal. It's valued at 68 billion pounds or about 104 billion dollars. And if it goes through, it would be the biggest beer deal ever uh, and create a brewer that sells one in every three beers around the world. But James, I'd like you to start off maybe by taking us through this saga. Uh, SAB rejected four previous bids from AB InBev. So what's changed this time? Well, uh, Shannon, that's correct. It's, it has been an incredibly interesting month for um, AB InBev and, and SAB Miller and anybody interested in, in the beer sector. Um, and basically, they came in with a bunch of like low offers uh, at the beginning. And that's kind of quite normal in an M&A transaction. Like the buyers obviously want to try to buy at the lowest price possible. And right. the sellers... looking out for themselves. Absolutely. The sellers think that, you know, you should pay a massive premium and that, you know, you've got the best asset out there and and in fairness, you know, SAB Miller you know, has a lot to go for it. it. It operates in a lot of kind of fast-growing markets. In, a lot of emerging markets. Uh, exactly. So Africa is, is kind of a big a big kind of region where it operates. So the, the first couple of offers were kind of low balls to kind of see how, how they reacted. And, and they weren't engaging. Then the, the, the first milestone came when they made an offer, £42.15. And uh, at that point, they... ABI got its first major coup where it convinced one of the big shareholders in SAB Miller called Altria, which is also the, the cigarette, right, uh, the, the company behind company. The, the Marlboro, the, the cigarette brand. And uh, and they said that they liked the deal. And the reason they liked the deal was because they were going to get a very big equity component. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that they're going to get a lot of, of shares uh, of the new entity, uh, which came at a fairly low price. The offer on on the cash was like at, a, at about a forty percent premium. Right. At that point, like the chairman of SAB Miller, who's like this kind of very tough executive, said, "No way! This is a terrible deal. It undervalues the company." 
And so wh- why is one big shareholder liking the deal and, and the, the chairman kind of rejecting it? Well, it was good for, for Ultra because they kind of get equity. They won't pay any, any tax on that. Right. And they get all the upside of this new combined giant, which will have like 30% of the world kind of beer market. It will control so a third pretty much of the world's beer market. So then they went back to the negotiating table. And after another couple of rounds, they eventually on, on the weekend, uh, the, the kind of the main shareholders in, in ABI, which is a private equity group called 3G, controlled by uh, three Brazilian kind of um, financiers. Who are instrumental in the Heinz deal, right? And the Heinz craft deal, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They also are behind um, the acquisition of Burger King. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they basically convinced another key shareholder in SAB Miller, which is this kind of aristocratic Colombian family called the Santo Domingos. You know, they're very popular in the UK in the kind of the gossip press. And eventually they got them on board at, at £43.50. And that basically allowed them to go on Monday to a meeting. And on that meeting, there was like a lot of negotiation going on between the, C- the, C- the CEO of, of ABI and the chairman of SAB Miller, and eventually they threw the extra 50 pence and announced the deal just a day before the deadline for the deal to be completed. And eventually they kept a fairly low kind of equity component because, again, the other Santo Domingo and Altria wanted to keep a, a big kind of equity component right. so they wouldn't pay tax and then a decent cash payout for the other investors. So a lot of drama leading up to this, but can the deal actually get done? I mean, they've got to get the approval of regulators in a lot of different places, not least in the U.S. and in China. That's correct. I mean, the regulatory risk is clearly there. And ABI, uh, when it acquired, for example, recently Modelo, which is like was the owner of Corona, mm-hmm. thought it could do it very easily. And, and instead, it incurred into a number of problems with the Department of Justice. Just because they were going to own too much of the beer market? Well, there was the issue of like they had too many brands in the U.S. It would have been too big. Mm-hmm. But there was also a problem with distribution, sales. So that's the important, the key point. Because in this case, ABI and SAB Miller are, know very well that they need to sell some assets in the U.S. This is not the market where they can grow. And there's, there's a, they'll probably sell 50% of the stake that SAB Miller has in, in Miller Coors. Mm-hmm. There's an obvious buyer. Uh, which is Molson Coors, which is its partner in the U.S. And, and that will be straightforward. But then there's an issue about what happens to distribution in, in the U.S., what happens to sales in the U.S. Because mm-hmm. they share a lot of resources? Absolutely, yeah. And like the sale of the assets will address part of the problem, but it might, it, it, it might not be that straightforward. The truth is we don't know yet. The deal has to be completed. But regulators will be very, very kind of paying a lot of attention. Are the this. companies confident that they're going to get it? I approved? think they are uh, for the simple reason that you know, usually there's, there's a breakup fee, a break fee, excuse me, for these deals. And they tend to be right, around. So that, what, so that if it falls apart. That's correct. Somebody, if the deal doesn't go somebody. through and often like a regulatory reason can block a deal. They have to then, the, the, the buyer needs to pay the seller So AB and Bev in this case would pay SAB Miller. Correct. Okay. That's correct. And in this case, usually on, on, on average, um, a break fee is around 5% of the overall deal. Mm-hmm. When, when you have a slightly contentious situation, the break fee can go up to even 10%. In this case, we're talking about a $104 billion deal. And the break fees of less than 3% of the overall deal. That is a kind of, it's a sign that you know, they're fairly bullish that they can get this done. But as you said, the US isn't the only uh, kind of risky uh, area for them in terms of regulatory risks. 
There's also China, where the two players are like, um, I think SAB Miller has about 23% of the Chinese beer market. ABI has 15%. So together, they'd be nearly having controlling 50%. I doubt the Chinese authorities will like that. Right. And then there's also some important risk going on in, in South Africa, less so from a regulatory standpoint, and because they don't really compete there. SAB Miller has obviously like is is listed in in the UK, but it's also listed in Johannesburg. It has kind of a history in South Africa, and there's a sense that you know there's a fear that the government might try to put some roadblocks. Mm-hmm. The South African government, which is, has tends to be leftist, isn't hasn't been very kind of business friendly. And they to wouldn't foreign want investors. they wouldn't want this big company to be owned by foreigners. Uh, I mean, the fact that it already is owned by foreigners, right. but there's this sense of skepticism. And, and, you know, as Lindsay maybe will tell us later a bit more about uh, the culture of ABI. I mean, it's seen as a very aggressive buyer where they'll shed a lot of jobs. So there's a, a little skepticism for sure in, in South Africa. And, and finally, there's Europe. Again, there, there, isn't, there aren't any obvious overlaps uh, because like um, ABI, which is actually a no, originally a Belgian brewer and it's still kind of listed. Its main listing is in Brussels. Mm-hmm. I mean, it controls de facto the Belgian market and SAB Miller isn't really present there. And and the same goes, you know, SAB Miller is very big in Turkey and ABI isn't present. So I doubt there'll be any regulatory problems in Europe. But, you know, when it comes to big deals, regulators always like to kind of poke around and make it hard for big companies just to remind them that, you know, they're even if they can pull off a $100 billion deal, they do not control the world. Right. So we can expect probably a drawn-out process here. But Lindsay, what what is this going to mean for actual beer drinkers? Are we going to be having to pay more for bottles of Bud Light? Well, first of all, do you still drink Bud Light is the big question for the U.S., I'd say. Um, They've seen their market share drop to about 7.6% for Bud as a whole. And there has been, as you well know, a, a big shift towards drinking craft beer, Um, And you just need to go out in any bar or pub in the U.S. to see just the inordinate amount of range of craft beers that is on offer now. Um, The market share there for craft beer alone is is about 11 percent now. And that's been phenomenal growth. And analysts expect that to grow further. And all of that comes in a context whereby U.S. beer sales as a whole are pretty flat or expected to decline a little bit. So. I think for this deal, um, given that um, it's very likely, as James pointed out, they would have to give up their uh, Miller Coors um, joint venture. It's very much more about where the growth is and that growth is in Africa. It's in the emerging markets and that's what's important for them. So tell us a little bit about Molson Coors, who could be the other big winner in this deal. So Molson Coors is a U.S.-Canadian company that um, has what it calls one of its, uh, the first craft beer, which is the Blue Moon, which isn't actually recognized as such, but um, they claim it is. Anyway, they are um, a significant company um, based out of Canada and also Denver. And basically, the, 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 the way it would work is that if the US authorities force AB and SAB to sell off that part of the joint venture, which it's assumed they would have to, then Molson would get to immediately, given that SAB has been taken over, raise its stake from 42% to 50% and then appoint a president or CEO of the joint venture. It then gets first right of refusal and last right of refusal on a bid, which makes it pretty certain that they would be the company to um, acquire the remaining 58% that SAB now holds. 
Now, within that, there could be cost savings, analysts saying, of between $300 and $500 million because there's so much overlap between the two in terms of administration, human resources, that sort of thing. And it just gives them a big leg up in, in a beer industry in the US, which is not growing very fast. Right. And as you point out, I mean, it's sales are flat. There's a lot of interest in craft beer. But a lot of these craft brewers are now being bought up by big companies. Isn't that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. So whether then there will be further acquisitions from these from the big sort of mainstream beer side, I, it's difficult to say at the moment. But yes, they are. And it sort of blows in the face of, of this idea that actually people really like craft beer because they are small and owned by small startups and a sort of local and niche. And so to, to, to be bought out by sort of bigger companies flies in the face of what a lot of younger people actually want out of a beer. But again, would they really never know unless they looked into that? That's true. I don't know how closely any of them are reading the back of their beer bottles. Exactly. So, I mean, so one of the questions, whether you're a craft brewer being acquired by a, a big brewer, or if you're an SAB Miller employee and you're looking at this potential deal, is what they might be able to expect from from their, you know, if this deal goes through, from their new owners. This summer, the FT wrote a long piece about AB InBev's management style, which is aggressive to say the least. James, you mentioned, you know, cost cutting, and you know, they've been they are often very aggressive at eliminating waste, which includes underperforming employees. How does that stack up against SAB Miller's culture, James? That's that's a great question. I mean, everybody who's followed the ABI or, or who's followed, more importantly, the, the executive, the management team behind it, this is a group of Brazilians led by Carlos Brito. He's a no-nonsense kind of hard-nosed executive. He he says that he basically, he mainly works the whole day. He only reserves 30 minutes of his day for a little run on, on his treadmill. But <laughs> That's the extent the, of his hobbies. Exactly. I mean, the guy is obsessed with the company, which I'm sure shareholders love. Uh, I'm not sure about those guys who are in the, the kind of the, the low the, the low performing end of, of, of his workforce, which apparently... I mean, there's been a lot of reports we've reported to that, you know, he just gets rid of them. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, these guys are negative. And so, you know, SAB Miller has a very different culture. It's much more collegial. And, you know, some people might argue that it's it's run less well, less efficiently than ABI is. I mean, you know, SAB Miller probably won't be having those, you know, tap on the beers on the tap flowing any longer because they'll be focused on you know, <laughs> drinking mineral water and get things done faster and better. Lindsay, another, you know, another question that's come up as people look at AB InBev's ambitions has been, you know, will there be a point where they move beyond the beer market uh, and start, you know, looking at a, a competition in other drink categories, say soft drinks? You know, what, yeah, what well, might that, we be able to expect there? It's a great question again. And it's, um, it's very much in the unknown at the moment. There's been speculation for years about whether it would do this. And I think one of these, one of the issues that come out now, now that they've they've got a deal agreed at least, is where does it go from here? Because it's not like it can buy another beer company. Right. They've so, probably maxed out <laughs> the number of labels they can the own. Things, yeah, exactly. And one of the things that people bring up, I think experts bring up, is that um, when you look at what um, 3G have done and what they've achieved, which, as, as James um, went into, is lots of the incredible amounts of cost cutting. Generally, what has happened is whenever they've taken something over, it's only a year or so before they take something else over. And it makes it very difficult from from this side of the, the fence to see exactly 
how well these companies are doing because there's very little apple for apple comparisons to do. And then so moving on then, would they go into soft drinks? I would never say no on that because it's highly, when you think about the way they operate, it would make it would it would make sense on, on that. But what whether they would do it in, in terms of the timeline and, and where they would go with that and who they would opt for is is whole different questions. I mean, I think there have been sort of, you know, chatter more than anything about, oh, would they go for Coca-Cola? And Coca-Cola has always traditionally been saying that they would never want to get involved in beer making or or be associated that they're very much a soft drinks company. So all of this is very much up in the air conversation rather than anything solid, but it's definitely somewhere that people will be looking. And I mean, interesting because the soda market, another area where there are things have flattened in the US, but potential growth overseas, right? Yes, yes. Well, we'll have to we'll have to keep following this and to see how it all turns out. Uh, you can read more about this saga at ft.com slash companies. James Fontanella Khan and Lindsay Whip, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm joined by Matt Lieber, co-founder of Gimlet Media, a podcasting company based in Brooklyn that's launched some really popular shows in the last year, including a show called Startup, whose first season told the story of Gimlet itself. Uh, so to start off, actually, Matt, I'm going to ask you, for our listeners who have not listened to Startup, what is Gimlet and what do you do? So Gimlet is a um, media company that's focused on audio. Um, another way to label us is as a podcast network. Um, and so we have these three shows, each of them is category leaders, mystery show, reply all and startup. And we're very focused on narrative. So these are shows that are, you know, 20 to 40 minutes long. Um, and they tell stories. So mystery show on each episode, the host, Starly Kine tells a story about solving a mystery, although they're different than the kind of mysteries that you would expect. It's more um, like Encyclopedia Brown mysteries. Yeah. Way. Or Columbo, <laughs> I think was her big inspiration. Um, and Reply All is a show about the internet. It's stories about the internet. This week it's a story about um, a woman who um, had, had, was, having, was experiencing strange medical issues and couldn't diagnose them and ended up going to this website, CrowdMed. And this tells the story of her experience before and after that. It's an That's amazing. A, that can be a bad rabbit hole to go down to, diagnosing it's yourself on the internet. But. Yes, it's super, <laughs> this, the, the episode is super interesting because it goes into that. Like in a, in a way, it actually did help her get to a certain new insight, but not in the way you'd expect. Um, and then Startup, which is a show about what it's like to really start a business, is essentially a, a serialized documentary series that goes behind the scenes of people who are building businesses. And the first company that we followed on Startup was our company, was Gimlet. And so this, uh, my co-founder, Alex Bloomberg, who's also the CEO of the company, um, was the original and host. formerly of This American Life and Planet Started Money. This American Life, um, started and hosted um, Planet Money. I'm sorry, I didn't start This American Life. It was part of the team with Ira Glass that did. Um, and Alex is just an incredible storyteller. You know, takes subjects like the the global economy, which seem like, um, of course, the FT listeners think it's like uh, inherently super interesting, but takes um, subjects that may not be totally accessible and makes them like really um, compelling and intriguing and makes them into these must-listen stories. And that's so, very similar to, to the approach you're taking with the shows yeah, very much. that you guys are doing. Yeah. I mean, what was really interesting about about startup about your your first show was that uh, I mean, it really was like kind of the biography of of your company. So, in a lot of ways, one of the interesting things I think about Gimlet is we know a lot about <laughs> about you know, for a private media company, we know actually know a lot about what's happened. So, you guys raised 
1.5 million last year to to start off to launch this podcasting company. You expected to launch, I think, three shows in, the, in your first year. You know, a year later, you've already got three shows up and running. You're going to do two more before the end of the year. You've hired 25 people. You've said before you expect to sell about two million in ads in the first year. Is that still? Yeah, we'll we'll do around two million in revenue this year. Yeah. And then, and I mean, I've heard Alex recently say, you know, you, you guys still have a, have a nice, uh, a robust bank account. So wh- what what happened? Like, why were you able to grow so much faster than you had anticipated? And is, is it about podcasting specifically? Is it about the broader media landscape? Um, yeah, I mean, there are things that are changing about podcasting that have changed in the last couple, really it's changed over the last couple of years. So one thing is like, there are just more smartphones and the way we distribute our audio is, is you know, 75% of the, of, of these, of our listening happens on smartphones. So we're a mobile media company, like definitely mobile first. And there are more smartphones out there. Um, in the last year, Apple has hard baked the podcast app onto every new phone. So, you know, the install base of potential podcast listeners is just much, much larger. And I think it's actually about to grow quite significantly as other platforms come on. And, and just to say within mobile, particularly like in Apple, like iTunes as a source of listenership for you guys is, is still the, by far the biggest, right? Yes, it's the majority of our listening. Yeah. Um, and then you've got connected cars coming online. So you know, half of radio listening in the U.S. market happens in connected cars. So those are slowly coming online. So you've, you've had a bunch of factors. And then I would say a year ago, another thing happened, which was um, – Serial launched, mm-hmm. and the, the the podcast from This American Life about yeah. uh, that followed a, a sort of real life crime story reinvestigation yeah. that kind of took the world by storm, yeah, unexpectedly, and just it. just an incredible like ambitious um, piece of storytelling and like just beautifully executed, and the scale of the audience there I think just shocked everyone. So mm-hmm. that created a lot. how many new podcast listeners that that's created in the last year? I don't I don't actually know. What it has done is created a lot of um, attention right. and it's put podcasts inside the mainstream conversation. When you go talk to advertisers, they're much more, they understand what podcasts are and they're kind of much more eager to see how they could participate. So I want to talk a bit about ad strategy. Anyone who listens to sort of any amount of podcasts is very familiar um, with this concept of host read ads. So, you know, most shows, the host will break away and say, you know, this is brought just by our sponsor. Uh, you know, that those ads can command a premium from advertisers. You know, what's really appealing is that the host reads it? It's there is that connection with the listeners. That's what the advertisers want to pay for, which is like, has made for some sort of potentially interesting ethical questions. Some mm-hmm. of which you guys have addressed um, on startup, but, yes. but, but particularly on with Gimlet and the ads that you guys are doing are kind of even farther down that spectrum of native advertising. I mean, they're they, they're kind of almost mini podcasts in themselves, sort of within an episode. There's like a mini episode. Um, why was that the right sort of strategy for the kind of brand that Gimlet is? Uh, well, I, first of all, I don't think it started off as a strategy, although it has definitely become a strategy. <laughs> um, I mean, it started off just because we were, uh, as we were making the first season, Alex Bloomberg in one of his like genius insights was like, oh, we should make the ads interesting. And because he was startup was about him starting a business, it made total sense right. that he would like talk about the ads and then talk to the advertiser right. and talk about, we, he would say things like, this is how much, he would tell the audience, this is how much this brand paid to be in this. Right. Advertiser. And then he'd go and like talk to the, the marketing manager and say like, yeah. why do you want to advertise exactly. to my audience? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then, I mean, I, I would say, but there was always this like shared belief that we had, which was like the ad, the ad should be interesting. Mm-hmm. They should be like, there's no reason um, that they should have to be interrupting your experience in an unpleasant way. Um, in, in the same way that if you open, like, you know, 
Vogue magazine, the ads are part of the product. Yeah. And like that's actually if you took all the ads out, it would be um it would have much less, of, less of a product. Well just be it would it would be a different thing. Yeah. Um and so, you know, when we produce the ads, we have a couple of like principles at play. One is that um that it's totally transparent to listeners what is an advertisement mm-hmm. and what is editorial content. Two is that the advertisement advertisers have zero um influence or impact on the editorial content. And three, and maybe three should have been number one, but three is that they should be good, that they should be interesting. And it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, there's actually a long tradition in audio of this kind of advertisement. Like if you can go, you know, Howard Stern does some, mm-hmm. they used to do some of the best ads for Snapple and they were host read. Right. You always knew they were an ad. Right. Um, or even on NPR. I mean, when they, they, they read the sponsorships. Yeah. So and, and, and NPR, some of the hosts read the sponsorships, mm-hmm. some like on some news programs, they don't. It's actually like a, it's a, a third party like voiceover person who reads them. Um, but what that's allowed us to do is, well, one thing I think create a much better experience, like primarily create a better experience for the listener mm-hmm. and listener. So I don't just want to like fast forward through the ad essentially. Yeah. I mean, listeners like our ads. Like they, we hear from them all the time. We sometimes hear from them. They'll say like, you know, I hate advertising. It's generally like, it's, generally just like interrupting my life and right. it's obnoxious. I, the only ads I like are the Super Bowl ads and your ads, which I take as the highest compliment. But it also means that um, for us, it's meant a couple other things. One is that um, you can, like we're creating premium um, content and we want to maintain like a premium tier in the ad market. We've been able to do that. So we have, um, we have pricing power in the market. And then two is... Um, it's allowed us to access brand advertisers. So these so, are like the, the big companies who aren't necessarily asking you to go to a website and put in like a promo code to get free razors. This is like we're Delta and this yeah. is you know that you know a brand advertisement for Delta Airlines. Yeah. So Ford Motor Company sponsored season two of Startup. We produced a set of ten ads for them. We did all the creative. Um, you guys like went in and interviewed engineers, right, and talked about some of the new Ford, what the new products that Ford was making. Yeah, and it was interesting. We, I mean, I think one of the things we're able to do is we're able to hu- take a brand and humanize humanize it. This is what audio is really good at. It's a very intimate. Like podcasts are really intimate, mm-hmm. and it lets you, it helps you relate and kind of empathize with another person. And mm-hmm. I think, um, I think this is one thing we can do in the with the with the ads too. So you're not just getting money from advertisers. You you guys are selling memberships. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, a, you know, somebody can pay. Was it fifty dollars a year to support Gimlet to become a member of Gimlet and get some access to premium content, um, maybe you know early access to shows or to events? So, w- what kind of split are you aiming? Sort of ideally, would you aim for between ad revenue, subscriber revenue? Uh, I don't. Ha- I ca- I can't. Say, I, I don't know what the split is. Like we haven't modeled out like what's the correct split because we're still so early in the business. Um, but I think I, I do think the future of this business is going to have a strong component of around sort of um, subscriptions, memberships, call it what you will. A healthy um, revenue mix. Yeah, so healthy to me means like, you know, 20, 30 plus percent. Yeah. And then when, when you're thinking about resources, I mean, you, you have a staff of 25 now. How are you splitting resources, whether it's time, people, whatever, um, between the needs of developing your business model and, and focusing on developing great content? I'm very focused on content. That's the product. We're still like really product focused. So the company is 25 people, you know, vast majority of those are editors, producers, hosts, um, sound engineers. And then we have a team, we, there, there's a set of sort of, you could call them shared services that go across the company, but those are partially editorial, mm-hmm. right? And kind of engineers and studios and infrastructure. 
and then you know sales and business operations. But th- that's a small team. Like we're we're very focused on product at this point. And is that also why you decided, at least for now, not to sort of go into the technology side of things? There are other there are other podcasting companies that have, are looking at or have launched their own platforms or their own apps. Um, you guys haven't gone in that direction. Yeah, we haven't. Um, I think one of the things we've learned is that focus is extremely important for us. Mm-hmm. And we're only a year in the company, um, focusing on making the best shows and growing the biggest audiences and telling great stories. I think we've been rewarded for that. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. And I think it's, you know, it is hard. There are some diff. it's hard, it's hard to lead in media and lead in technology. Yeah. Right. Just that's sort of an inherent distraction. Maybe. I don't know if it's an, it's just hard to do both. Um, and I think there are different things about the dynamic of this industry that go back to like how it's built. Like it's built on our, so far today, podcast has been built on RSS, right? Um, which is like a standard that you, it's not like the web where having a sophisticated CMS that can serve, um, you know, images and video and handle your advertising in a way that like loads at the same speed and feels integrated with the product like that stuff can really matter in on the web you know right. but podcasting is 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 quite different it's a pipe and you're sending an mp3 down it right, and that's right. the audio is the experience so um so that's what we're focused on so the first season of startup um was all about starting gimlet and you you know you were obviously a major character on the show you know, we, we, the listeners were here, we can hear you from the very beginning from when you, when sort of Alex was first looking for a partner in this business, you know, down to sort of the difficulties of negotiating, you know, a, a equity split. Yes. We recorded our, our, the negotiation of our equity split. Right. So, which was a, a great, but slightly cringeworthy, yes. <laughs> you know, it's hard to listen episode. To. Is it, so, I mean, was it hard at the time? I, mean, I imagine it was it hard to lay it all out there and to sort of reveal all the warts and, I mean, to your listeners, but also to your investors who were potentially yeah. and potential investors who were listening yeah. along the way. Well, you know, it's funny. Yeah, it was hard, and there were a bunch of times during this during season one that I was like, "We shouldn't put this out because we were trying to raise money at the time, and it would potentially harm the business to disclose yeah. sort of all of that internal." Well, a lot of season one is about being an entrepreneur, which when you're starting from zero and you've never done it before is means a lot of mistakes right. and it's a lot of screwing up. Most of the time you don't know what you're doing. The kind of public face of being an entrepreneur is like, you know, someone asks you, how's it going? And you say, it's going great. We are just crushing it. Right. Because you're always selling. Because right. you're always you're selling. And the truth is inside actually it's going terribly. <laughs> Even if it's going great is because it's been, you've like failed a bunch of times on the way to having a good day. So, um, and that's, and the show kind of peels that the magic of the show is it peels back that veneer. Um, so there were a bunch of times when, when both, I mean, each episode we would put out, we would say, is this the moment where we're revealing too much mm-hmm. and we're going to either alienate the audience or investors, scare investors away or scare new employees away? You know, we did this episode about, called Burnout, yeah, which was essentially- a great episode, but yeah. also- Yeah, because starting a business is also hard and like- And it was about know, how, for the, your employees, right? How, yes. What a hard time they were having. Yes, yes, for them, for us, whatever. I mean, for them, like they, we, we just, they were- Teams were working incredibly hard in the first few months, and there came a time where they burned out. And we did an episode about that, and kind of documented it in real time. And I told, I said to Alex and Lisa Chow, who was kind of editing at that time, I was like, "We can't put this out because we're also recruiting people to join the company. <laughs> Nobody's and no one is going to want to come work at this awful <laughs> company." And 
they're like, no, no, it'll be fine. I mean, the, the thing, the thing about Gimlet is like the, the religion at Gimlet is editorial. It's stories. Like mm-hmm. that is the thing. And they're like, this is a great story. Therefore we must put it out. No matter what the potential yeah. <laughs> alienation is yeah. to our business model or our hiring. Yeah. But what, what the surprising thing was that like, actually the more, the more, the more risky it felt, like the more engaged the audience was and the more people appreciated that we were like showing our authentic true selves mm-hmm. and i think on the burnout episode we made mistakes like we 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 made like really stupid management mistakes like we and we we fixed them like we we did better and i think actually in the process of making the show we learned changes we needed to make it was like kind of an ability to sort of step back step and back take a little perspective like see, yeah. yeah and and but I, I think what what listeners saw and people who later joined the company who we were recruiting said like you know i heard that episode and i heard one i felt like i knew you mm-hmm. And two, like I saw a group of people that were just incredibly dedicated and passionate to their craft. And like, those are the people I want to work with. So each time it seemed like it was too, too much to share. It ended up, I think it ended up paying off as a narrative, but also like for, for the company. So what comes next? I mean, and and that's very broad, but I'm thinking both for Gimlet itself, but also, I mean, what do you, for podcasting or what do you want to see next? Um, I mean, I'm so inside Gimlet. I'm just very excited about the next set of shows that we have coming up. Um, one of which is called Secretly Awesome, and it's co-hosted by um, Adam McKay, who's the director of the Anchorman movies, mm-hmm. and Adam Davidson from NPR's Planet Money, and he's a New York Times columnist too. I think that it, like we're really excited about that. We've been working on it for a while. Um, and then another show that's going to sort of explore the wide world of podcasting. You know, there's like three hundred thousand podcasts in in itunes right. something like that and there's only a hundred of them that anyone ever really talks about right it's sort of there's, like the problem with the apps and the number of apps actually on your home screen yes. right <laughs> and so this show is is going to try to take a crack at the discovery piece but also just to say like there's really interesting stuff happening in the tail and we're going to see if we can pull them out um and and then more more coming next year but um so that's kind of i'm just excited about the shows and you know we're We've outgrown our office. We're going to need to move to new studios, and I'm excited about that. You're going to stay in Brooklyn? Going to stay in Brooklyn, yes. Um, and then for the industry, um, I think it's a great moment for the industry. And I think the th- two things I'm, like, I'd say most excited about is one is the flowering of creativity, so the new kinds of shows that you're seeing and like the level of inventiveness that, that people are able to, to have. Um, lots of growth ahead. And it's an interesting thing because the industry is very collaborative. Like it's a lot of us come from the same place and a lot of us have been working together in some capacity for five, 10, 15 years or more. And there's just a shared belief that like we are all going to benefit if more people start listening to podcasts. So like, let's do that. It's not competitive. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's not competitive for listeners. I'd say there's, there is some competition around talent Mm -hmm. because it's a, a, it's a, it's a limited ecosystem of people who know how to do this stuff. Right, right. Um, but not competitive about like audiences. No, I mean, I think there's, it's not a zero sum game. Like the pie is just growing and growing. Um, and then on that, like I'm excited for new platforms to come in. I think, I think you're going to see in the next year, big new players come in and hopefully access large new audiences. Like, you know, today, um, like I see today, vast majority of our listening happens on, on Apple platforms. Um, and you often meet people who are on Android and they're like, how do I listen to podcasts? And you're like, well, there's not actually a, a natively installed solution. So, so they got to find a, find the right app for them. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, Matt Lieber, thanks for joining us. Uh, everyone should check out Gimlet Podcasts on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
A few weeks back, Cardiff sat down with Greg Ipp, chief economics commentator from The Wall Street Journal, to talk about his new book, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. The entire conversation is available now on our new long-form podcast, Alpha Chatterbox, which you can subscribe to and download wherever you get your podcasts. In this clip, Cardiff asks Greg when it is appropriate for policymakers to bail out financial markets and prop up the economy, given that these interventions can sow the seeds for a later crisis that is deeper than the one they just avoided. Here it is. And here's where I think things get really complicated. Um, So bear with me for a second, although you address this in the book at length. On the one hand, right, stable inflation, stable financial markets, a kind of steady hand on the macroeconomy makes it more likely that later, if you get a crisis, it'll be deeper and more problematic than if you'd let the occasional recession or the occasional financial crisis take hold that would have been smaller, right? On the other hand, an extended period of solid growth also means that by the time you get to that big financial crisis, the economy is bigger and wealthier than it otherwise would have been, yeah. right? It yeah. makes, the, it makes the, the decision here really hard to kind of balance. How, do, how should we think about that? What's a framework for thinking about that? Yeah, and uh, some of the more Austrian-inclined economists think that recessions from time to time are very good cleansing events to sort of like get rid of the excesses. Uh, and they, Like forest fires. Y- yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, you got to burn out that fuel. And that they, a lot of the criticism of the Federal Reserve's policy in recent years has from those who feel the Fed is basically trying to prop up a sickly economy rather than allow the process of getting rid of uh, unproductive assets to, to run its course. Even after two years of writing this book and thinking carefully about it, I do not have a simple formula that tells you when to let the economy hurt and when to save it. The... Uh, there's got to be some kind of a cost-benefit test we can we can run. It seems pretty clear that we shouldn't have allowed um, the forest fire of the finance system to burn out of control in 2008. On the other hand, in 1998, was it really necessary to serve long ter- to save long-term capital management? I will say, Cardiff, that one of the policy conclusions I came to here was that I was originally a skeptic of the Dodd-Frank law that tried to set up a mechanism to force the largest, even the largest banks to fail rather than having to be saved. I thought, never going to happen. You just ask for Lehman all over again. By the time I'd finished thinking about this and studying it, I actually think it's the right approach. We have to come up with a system that allows even something as traumatic as the failure of one of our biggest banks to occur without bringing down the system. I think it, it, I think it generates resilience. It allows us to actually endure more volatility. I mean, look at the stock market sell-off that took place just a, a month ago. It had been six years, as you well know, without a decent decline in the stock market. Volatility was at an all-time low. A lot of people were looking at it saying, that's not healthy. That's not good. People are not used to the fact that bear markets happen and corrections happen. In some sense, I feel safer after to go, going into the stock market after a period of the volatility that we've been through than I would after a long period without any volatility at all. And I think that principle applies in a number of... Because people aren't complacent. They're still paying attention. That's I guess right. The, the real worry is what happens in 10 or 15 years when the memory of this crisis starts to fade. Yeah, and that is kind of human nature. I mean, it's been proven, for example, that people are much more likely to buy flood insurance right after a hurricane. And then after a few years without a hurricane, they allow their insurance to lapse kind of human nature. You don't think about the crises. They, they're just not vivid enough. And so you stop protecting yourself. Uh, a lot of uh, banks use a, a formula called value at risk, which is designed to say, well, let's 
ask ourselves, what's the worst possible loss that this portfolio could suffer given what's happened to the volatility of markets in the last two years? Well, the problem is if you haven't had any big events in the last two years, you get a false sense of just how volatile markets can be, and you expand your leverage and your risk-taking until you've created a fragility that then makes the big one that much more likely. And you talk about why it's important to regard your exposure more than the probability that some catastrophe will happen, because if you only look at the probability, you might convince yourself that you don't need to think about it because it's a low probability, when actually you need to be thinking about, well— if it does happen, how am I going to survive this? Yeah, and Warren Buffett, as in many uh, aspects of life, is very wise on this point because Buffett's philosophy is not, uh, especially when it comes to insurance, is not his ability to predict catastrophes, but his ability to be paid properly for the possibility of a catastrophe. So when California needed reinsurance for earthquakes, they went to Warren Buffett because he said, I don't know whether earthquake, California is going to have another earthquake, but I know that the price they're willing to pay for insurance will, protect, will be worth my while if there is one. And similarly, when 9-11 happened, Buffett said there is no insurance company that can take the risk of a catastrophic, unconventional weapons attack in the United States. Only the federal government can provide that kind of insurance. And here, as every week for our follow-up, is Amelia Mahasek. Hi, Amelia. Hi, Shannon. So this is our opportunity to totally rag on Cardiff while he's not here. And you can tell me what you really think. (laughs) I always tell Cardiff what I really think, but I'm happy to unload on him in his absence. (laughs) When he's not here to defend himself. Exactly right. So last week. Yes, last week. So we had a great lineup with a discussion about Jack Dorsey taking on two jobs at Twitter and Square. And we had a fantastic pub quiz excerpts um, with lots of people who had turned up to see Paul Volcker and take our 70-question quiz. Which was so hard, let me just say. I have been in the audience not participating. Thank God, because I don't think I got like three right the whole time. I think Paul Volcker might not have even got all 70 right. But uh, So it was pretty tough work. But one of the things that struck me was how interested everybody was in the subject of to raise or not to raise with with the Fed on interest rates. That same old story. That same old story, which Cardiff hates. It's really boring and he's sick of talking about it. And But obviously it's a critical uh, point in the economy and everybody wants to talk about it and has an opinion about it and the markets are completely sort of fixated on it. So I think when Cardiff gets back, we need to get him to do more on the Fed raising rates. On his favorite topic. Well, I mean, I guess to be fair, yes, it's, it's, it's been a story that's going on forever. Like, frankly, as long as I've been at the FT, <laughs> this has been a question. Yeah. But isn't it kind of that, I mean, this, it's an irresistible question. You get to, you know, you get to place your bet. You get to make an argument. It's like, you know, there's two clear sides to take. I mean, people kind of love, especially maybe the, the kind of readers that we have, you know, love to take a position and argue it. Well, even the Fed governors have been jockeying this week. You see one of them come out and say, no, you must hold another Fed governor. I mean, those meetings must be amazing. I, yeah. I think the, meet, the meeting minutes probably don't really capture the full gamut of uh, debate. So They're politely I, edited. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we need to flog that horse a little bit more yeah. when Cardiff gets back. Well, and everyone can marshal their own uh, their own data. So maybe Cardiff will have some data to tell us why it doesn't matter or why that we shouldn't would be care very, so much. That would be cool. I think that would be a good thing to see. Does it matter to you or me whether uh, rates are raised by 0.5% in three months' time or three months after that? Right. It'll, it'll matter to some people trying to uh, do some big deals, I suppose. I think that's right. And the, obviously <laughs> but maybe the not for the plebs like us. <laughs> <laughs> and the markets are moving, you know, daily on right. the one whipsaw to the other. Yep. 
Great. Well, thank you, Amelia. Thank you, Shannon. And that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. Send us an email, or you can even record an audio file and email it to us at alphachat at ft.com. Finally, you can tweet me at Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, or Cardiff at Cardiff Garcia. This podcast was produced this week, as every week, by the lovely Amy Keene. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.